Well, good morning. Oh, come on, guys. You've had coffee. You've had donuts. Some of you are on a sugar rush. Come on now. Or as they say in some churches, can I get a witness up in here? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> you didn't say that right. How did, how did, uh, glory. Yes. You may want to turn me down a little bit, brother. I'm awfully hot up here. Our message for this morning is what are your intentions? Uh, what's your objective? What's your aim? What's your purpose? And what is the meaning of life? That question was uh, asked of people in New York City back in the year 2017 at Washington Park. So, let's see a video of what they, uh, when this person asked, what's the purpose of life? What was their answer? Let's see that video. Um, um, well, I can't find one. I don't know. I never thought about I really don't know. Sometimes I, I think maybe it's to, to, to get it right. I think it's very fluid, but I think the purpose of life basically is to contribute to society in the best way you know how. Raise a family, have grandchildren. To make the planet a better place than it was previously. Connect with something that's bigger than yourself. To glorify God on a daily basis and to essentially work to um, kind of become our best selves that we can and fulfill that potential that God gave us when he created us. For one, to be happy and to, and to make happy the people you have around and to tell how much you love them. Maybe just helping another person. If I can help one other life, then that would fulfill my purpose. My belief is that I was created to worship Allah, or if that's the Arabic word for God. To live like a good life and just leave with some sort of mark on history and just have somebody remember me. Do our best to get to heaven is bring as many people as we can with us. Pursuing what you really want to do. There's not really a specified meaning or a specified purpose. I guess that everyone comes up with that for themselves. Did you catch what one person said? To do what we can to get people, as many people go to heaven as we could. But it's kind of disheartening to hear a lot of the answers. You can tell that was 2017, pre-COVID. People are out there with no mask on. But you know, another way of asking that question is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, invest in eternal matters. Because at the end of the day, the only thing is going to matter is your relationship you have with Christ and the relationship you have with each other. When I'm gone and my daughters are still here, if Christ tarries that long, they're not going to remember what I gave them or how much money I gave them. They're going to remember one thing. Did, God, did Dad really love God and did Dad really love me? 
as it was said in Sunday school class this morning. In other words, was there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? So the question comes back, what is treasure to you? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it possessions? If you have given your life to Christ, if you are a born-again believer and you have put your faith in Christ, you have made Him Lord and Savior of your life, then you have died on the cross with Him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That doesn't mean I don't do anything, but that means what's important to me, what I invest my time and energy and resources is eternal matters. And what concerns us most of all as a believer in Christ is the transformation of ourselves into a better person, namely that we become more like Christ. In other words, when I died, I've died to my old self. It's no longer me. It's no longer I'm calling the shots anymore. And if you look at Scripture, it says that I was dead in my transgressions and sinned spiritually. And baptism is a picture perfect as a, a perfect, perfect picture of that. As I go into the water, I'm dying to myself. And then as I come out of the water, I'm resurrected with the power of the Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now raises me in newness of life. Now I have a new nature. I have the Holy Spirit now residing in me at the time of conversion that will convict me in righteousness, what to do and what not to do, and also convicts me of sin. So if we died with Christ, you've been resurrected with Him. You're given a new life, which is eternal. Your aims, ambitions, and goals, and your whole outlook on life are to be focused on Him. And this passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, serves as an important transition in the letter to the Colossians. What he's doing now, he's going to present the true alternative to the teaching and philosophy of these false teachers. It marks a new beginning. He's setting the implications up for someone who truly walks with the Lord. Look in verse 2. Set your mind, think, be intent on things above. So in other words, what is your mind set on this morning? Which goes back to the original question, which is the title of the message. What are your intentions? And with that... Let's look at the text. Let's read it together. That's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Look what he says. Therefore you have been raised up with Christ. So just as the death severed everything that bound them to their old self and old nature, His resurrection now has established everything they needed to live this new life. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, the last part of verse 12. And verse 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who is a work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice it's work out, not work for. So God has given us what we need to walk this new life, to live it out, to become more and more like Christ every day. He's given us His Word. He's given us uh, the Holy Spirit. He has given us each other. We have the Holy Spirit in our living inside of us. So God has done everything He can do to give us the tools that we need to walk in this new life. The question always becomes, which am I going to let have more influence and power on me? There's a lot of teaching out there that will tell you, well, you need to get more of the Holy Spirit. You have to do this or do that to receive more of the Holy Spirit. Dearly beloved, you have all the Holy Spirit you need at the time of conversion. In fact, the Holy Spirit was the one convicting you of a sin that led you to salvation to begin with. The question is not how I get more of the Holy Spirit. The question always is, how do I let the Holy Spirit have more control over me? And in fact, Paul mentions about being drunk. Don't be drunk. Don't let that have control over you. Because when people get drunk, what happens? They do stupid things that they don't normally would do. They lose all ambition, right? They just do whatever. And he makes an analogy here that just as someone's drunk with, this, with wine, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Now he's a play on words there, a metaphor saying, you should let the Holy Spirit have that same control over your life. That you lose all control, that you give it all to Him, and you do what He tells you to do in the moment. If you're like me, a lot of times the Holy Spirit will speak to us, that small, still voice, and we just kind of blow it off. I don't have time, I don't want to do that. Uh, what happens if they make fun of me, or whatever the, the excuse that we use at that time. But we are to work out our salvation. And I, look how he talks about that with fear and trembling. Salvation did not come cheap. Therefore, there's no such thing as cheap grace. When we disobey, we're, we should never take the stance that if I, if I sin, I just ask for forgiveness and everything's fine. No, that's going to the tent of the heart. One of the prayers I've heard in my lifetime that really just gripped me by the heart it was standing in the gap of D.C. with promise keepers and a Messianic Jew, which is a Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, prayed. And in his prayer, I'll never forget, I can't remember the whole prayer word for word, but in his prayer he said, forgive us, we who are chosen by you, speaking of the Jewish people, who have trampled over the precious blood of of Christ. Dear beloved, never, never forget that our salvation did not come cheap. It was a heavy price that had to be paid. And praise God that Jesus was willing to pay that price on our behalf. So therefore, we have been raised up with Christ. We have this new life. Look what he says. Keep seeking the things above. And that's an exhortation. That's a present imperative. It's a command. And in the Greek language, it's telling us that this is a continuous, ongoing effort. In other words, it's not an action you do that is completed. It's an ongoing thing. It never stops. It's an action that starts at the time of conversion, and it just keeps on going. You never reach the end of it. Seeking. And that's a particular reference to the orientation of one's will. See, your will can be directed, centered upon unprofitable aims, goals, and intentions, or... Your will can be directed and centered upon 
profitable aims, goals, and intentions. In other words, where's our will? What, what is it that's really driving it? And like we talked about in Sunday school cl uh, class this morning, it's not necessarily a, a do's and don'ts, but now we're getting on the behind the scenes, if you will. What's driving all that behavior? What's causing us to do this or not do that? Because it's an issue of the heart. And we must keep looking upward to receive clear direction for our conduct. And I've said this before, and needs to be repeated time and time again. Our theology, our study of God, our understanding of God should always drive and form and direct and influence and shape our ethics, not the other way around. We don't want to indulge in behavior and look for proof text to say, I can do this because this is what it says in the Bible. No, you go to the Bible first to see what it says and then apply it correctly. We get in a lot of trouble when we do the opposite. And you've heard this before. Wives, you wouldn't have a problem with your husband if you simply would submit to him. It says in the book of Ephesians, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And they leave it at that. Okay, it does say that, but what does the verse right underneath it say? Husbands, what? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh. Did you notice in that, by the way, this says passing, go back in that book of Ephesians and look at that passage. There's more verses directed to us as men than there is ladies. Just kind of interesting, so I point that out. Know why, guys? We are, are called to be the spiritual leaders at the home. And really, the Christian faith should always start at the home. See, our schools have gotten in trouble because now they're expected to do the job of parents. No, the teachers should be backing up what the parents say. The teachers don't have time to sit there and correct little Johnny on every little thing they do wrong. No one can learn in that environment. Therefore, the, all the morals should be taught at home. And church is the same, the same way. If, if a child just comes to church and there's no backup at home, it can't happen. But it's a very hard battle for that child if they didn't see it played out at home. So what I'm getting at, gentlemen, is we are the spiritual leaders. And I would say to you this morning, a lot of our problems is because we have forsaken our leadership responsibilities. And it's always to be one of humbleness to God because as Tammy sees me humble and submit to Christ, then she will follow my lead. She knows if I'm willing to lay my life down for her, she has no, no problem following what, I should, what she should do and follows what we're doing, what I'm asking her to do. Now look, he, he says looking above, and then we have a picture. We're not just looking above and look at the clouds and the sun or the stars. What, do he say? what does he say? Look above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. This is the ground and motivation for one to keep seeking the things above. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul expresses his desire to gain the upward call of God. No, that imagery in that Philippians passage comes from the athletic field, specifically a warning of a temporary crown. He goes a little further with it as he thought of the upward call as the prize from Christ Jesus calling Paul to go where Christ is. Isn't it the goal right now? Don't we all want to go where Christ is? Is that the whole? I mean, that's the end of the rainbow, right? That's the goal. That's, that's the touchdown, if you will, of what we're going for. We want to be in heaven where Christ is. Keep looking where Christ himself is seated. And by, that word, by the way, that word seated 
it's indicating to us that's Christ's finished work. He is sitting down. His work completely done. He died once and for all. He was resurrected, now sitting, seating at the right hand. I mean, his work is completed. And he's sitting, where is he sitting at specifically? At God's right hand. And that is a metaphor representing God's ultimate power and authority. It's a symbol of power and protection. Psalm chapter 89, verse 13. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. God's right hand is a symbol of God's presence of saving power. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm chapter 60, verse 5. That your beloved may be delivered. Save me with your right hand and answer us. God's right hand is a symbol of victory and the defeat of His enemies. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm chapter 18, verse 35. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me. God's right hand is a symbol of God's mighty work and of His judgment. Limitations chapter 2, verse 4. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. And in Psalm chapter 45, verse 4. And in your majestic ride, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. It's in this place of power and authority where Christ is seated. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And for the early church, that particular psalm, chapter 110, verse 1, they use to demonstrate the deity of Jesus. Their insight was given by the Lord Himself. In a dialogue He had with the Jews, Jesus asked, what did David mean? Because David said, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. So He's asking, well, who's David talking about? David was making a point that the Lord, God, was asking my Lord Jesus to sit at His to sit down at his right hand until he made his enemies a footstool. You can see that conversation with Jesus and the Jews in Matthew chapter 22, verse 44, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, and Luke 20, verse 42. He's sitting, and God the Father has made his enemies a footstool. So that even gives, gives us a more picture about how Jesus is sitting down completely done his work, and is at rest at God's right hand. I mean, picture that. He's made his enemies his footstool, like an ottoman. So he's sitting down with his feet propped up, his work completely done. And because he's completely done his work the way the Father wanted, God has exalted him, God the Father. And the heavenly realm that centers around the one with whom they've been raised, Christ is in the position of supreme authority, no principality or power can prevent their access or our access to Him. So we must keep on aiming which is above. Keep aiming on Him who's at the center so 
Christ is there in the position of supreme authority. No one can move and no one can touch him. And no one can prevent your access to him. Think about that. You can go to Christ 24-7. He is always there. Always ready to listen. You'll never pray and hear, beep, I'm away from the throne right now, but please leave your name and number. I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Or you'll never hear, beep, press one for English, press two for Spanish. Press... No. He is always there. And we have access to God the Father through the Son because of what the Son has done. We can go right to God. How many of you would like to go talk to the president right now? I don't care who the president is. I mean, just go have audience with the president. Or how about the governor? How about a senator? Or let's say a, a state legislator. Would you like to have 10 minutes with that person, be it a woman or a man, just to talk to them? You know how much red tape you'd have to go through? But yet we have access to the very one who allowed them to be in that position to begin with. We are called because we have been raised up with Christ. Keep our thing, keep our focus on things that are above. Our values, our morals, our ethics, our standards must be focused on the rule of Christ. The task of the Colossians church was to call people to Christ. There was a call people away from the earthly things, the temporary things. It was to call people to life. And for Forest Big Baptist Church, that's the same mission that we have. To call people to Christ. Don't focus on the earthly, the temporary things. Remember what the end goal is. We have a perfect opportunity. As bad as 2020 has been, and 2021 doesn't look to be much better, we have a great opportunity. See all the stuff happening around us? Yes, we can be concerned, and yes, we should pray. But this is not all there is. There is coming a day of reckoning, if you will, when everything will be set straight, and there will be no more death, no more sin. Why, why is that? Because He's going to come again. And all those things will pass away. And when people ask us about how can you continue to, to have a, a positive outlook, well, because my faith is not based on the President or the Congress or the government or anything on this earth. My hope, my faith, everything that I am is anchored to and stands upon the rock who is Christ Jesus. So set your mind. Think. Be intent on things above. The way you think is intimately tied to how you live your life. Even secular science will point that out to you. The psychiatrists tell us if a child all their life growing up is told you're a nothing, you're a loser, I wish that you were never born, that has a huge effect on that child. And chances are they will grow up and live that out. So what we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves. So set your mind, think, is not just a reference to an activity of the intellect. This includes the movement of one's will the aims and the motives underlying one's will, one's desires. And in other words, we get back to that. What is your intent? What is your objective? What's your target? What's your goal? What's the end game of all this? And that's helped me so many times, dear beloved, when I, well, I have doubts. I, you know, I've had my share of fair doubts. What keeps me going is, Tim, remember, what's, what's the end zone? What's the goal here? To one day be in heaven with my Creator. 
to be with Him for all eternity, worshiping and getting to know Him more and more. So why in the world do I get so upset and concerned about things of this world? Why do I let that shape my behavior more than I let God shape my behavior? I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. We should be good citizens. But this is not my home. I'm just passing through. Can you imagine that day? What it's going to be like? To see all our loved ones who have gone on before. And to finally see the one who took the nails from me as he truly is in all his glory, his wonder, and magnificence. And be able to stand before him, not because of what I could do or ever done, but because I put my faith in him and his sacrifice, he's on the cross. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And in heaven, there will be no more sin. Sin will be completely eradicated. What in the world does that look like? You realize, of course, in heaven, there will be no more gossiping, no more backbiting. All that will be gone. What's that look like? I have no idea. But I so forward looking to it. I look forward to it. You know, in Matthew 15, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus why his disciples wrote tradition. Now, this is going at the heart and the intent, all right? Because the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate bread. Now, back in those days, they didn't use soap. It wasn't a sanitary issue. It was more ritualistic of getting oneself pure before you ate. But Jesus turned the tables on them by saying, well, you broke a commandment for the sake of tradition. You're breaking the commandment, honor thy father and mother. Because what they would do is they say, this, these financial resources, I've already promised them to God. Therefore, mom and dad, I can't help you. So when mom and dad came asking for help, they said, oh, I can't help you. That's the day they get dedicated to God. In reality, it wasn't. He said, you should help that person in need. You're just holding back for yourself. And he goes on in that in Matthew chapter 15 to say, Isaiah's prophecy was true when he said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. Did you really? Let me personalize it. Did I really believe with my heart when I just sang, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain? Did I really not just saying it, but did I really believe it in my heart with everything that I am? You know, we get so wrapped up on the style of music and the rhythm and all, but are we paying attention to what we're saying? I, I, I love that I surrender all. Have I truly surrendered everything to Him? I'm ashamed to say, no, I haven't. Because as I walk this journey, it's always a question of Tim letting go of this and Tim letting go of that and giving it to God. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, we talked about this last week. Jesus says, it is not what enters the mouth that defiles a man, but, proceed, what, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. Because when you speak, you're revealing your heart. See, actions are important. Christianity is not to be passive. We are to be active. But the desire behind those actions means everything. I can't tell what your heart intent is 
And personally, I'm glad I don't have that ability. I don't think I can function if I knew that. Only God does. What is your intent? What's your heart set upon this morning? It goes on, so you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died to yourself. You have died to the elementary things of this world. And they're encouraged to think on things in heaven, not just because they have died, but they've been raised with them. We participated, they participated in His resurrected life. It's an example of an already not yet eschatology. And eschatology is a big theological word that simply means study of end times. So we have a new nature now. We are new creatures now because Scripture tells us if anyone's in Christ, all things have passed away, all things have become new. You are a new creature or creation in Christ. You have that now. You have the new life now. However, one day we all will be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, not all of us will be dead, physically dead, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we'll be changed. Ooh. Some of us will be alive when Christ comes again, and in a twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed. Our bodies will be changed from perishable to imperishable. And he tells us the dead in Christ will rise. And this word, hidden, is a perfect tense in contrast to died. Died is an aorist tense. It simply means past action. You have died. One action once and for all. But this hidden is perfect. It stresses the ongoing and permanent, enduring, eternal effects. Life has been hidden with Christ in God and remains that way. It's in God because Christ Himself has His being in God the Father. And those who belong to Christ have their being in God as well. It is secure, unable to be touched by anyone. Now listen to me very carefully. Just as Christ is hidden from the eyes or the vision of the world, our life is also hidden in Him. In other words, to unbelievers, we appear to be dead. We don't have any fun. We can't do anything. We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't. I don't go to church because you can't do this, but you can't do that. And they look at us like, how can you do this? But we are dead to things of this world, but we're very much alive. And the source of our life goes beyond this world and what it can provide. The new life... Christ provides, encourages believers to see things identified with that new life. So we do have a new life. But the unbelieving world, they can't really figure that out. You may have some people come to you. How can you act this way? How can you have this, this position? And you can tell them, well, it's not me. It's Christ living in me. Because left to myself, I would never do this. But because of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ, He gives me what I need to act differently. Now, he says when Christ, look at the text, who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed. I'm going to have to slow myself down because I get too excited at this point. Because at Christ's return, each person, everybody, will see Christ and perhaps for the first time be confronted with His magnificence of His person. 
Jesus, who was once hidden, will now be revealed. And the whole earth will see him for who he is. Everybody. The believer's life that is hidden now, but it will be obvious to all the reasons we had the values, the outlook, and service to God will be clear. The revelation of the Son of God will also reveal the sons and daughters of God. The values and goals of Christians will be vindicated. The glory of Christ will captivate the minds of the unbelievers and the believers as well. Everybody will know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Lord. And going back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Why does He make that declaration? No one can escape it. Everybody will know. And every knee is going to bow. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, our faith will be our vision. And we'll see and hear everything we've read about, sung about. It will now be there in front of us. We'll be able to see it. Oh, we sing about songs of heaven. I don't think they come close to the way it's really going to be. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? So now, our life remains hidden. We will be misunderstood, belittled, and persecuted. Unbelievers will attack both the Christians and the Christ whom they love and worship. But someday, dear beloved, someday that's all going to change because the King of glory is coming back. That's why we must have a sense of urgency about the gospel. Even among this COVID, it should be motivation to even be more urgent about the message that we've been given. To tell people about who Jesus is. I love what 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, look what it says, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. For this reason, we should seek higher things. We have a greater destiny than on earth. We are to prepare for heaven. That's what this is all is, is dress rehearsal for heaven. We're going to do nothing but worship God for all eternity. Learning to know who He is. Right there. And we have God now present with us with the Holy Spirit. But they have an uninterrupted fellowship with God. Think about that for a moment. Because of your faith in Christ, you'll be able to stand before God holy and blameless. And there will be people there from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are to prepare for heaven. That's the goal. There's nothing wrong with paying for this life, but this life is secondary. Doesn't, I mean, if I live to be 80 years old, what's 80 years compared to all eternity? And we are to work for the reconciliation of all people. That's the ministry we have been given. The ministry of reconciliation. Telling people how they can be reconciled, made right with their Creator, God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the Gospel. 
It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your education. It does not matter your social economic standing. It doesn't matter if you live in the north or the south. It doesn't matter if you live in the United States. or No matter who you are, you can have that gift of salvation by simply coming to him and tell him, I've broken your law. I need your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, come into my life. And Jesus says in the Gospels, whoever comes to him, he won't throw him out. I know about you. When I think on this, it sure gives me my hope when I go out in this world that we're confronted with corruption of all levels. We're dealing with the illness no one really seems to know about. We have people passing away. We have marriages breaking up. But there is hope. Hope for the future that I won't be where God is one day. But also hope in the here and now that there is something that can be done. You want to see lives change? You want to see reconciliation happen in marriages and people's relationships? It's all centered on Christ. In other words, you don't have to wait till he comes back again to share that reconciliation and all that peace. We can experience it right here and now if we simply allow him to do so. I'm waiting for that day. I look forward to that day when he comes again. But I'm reminded the reason why he hasn't is because he's waiting. He's patient, or as the King James runs with that, long-suffering, wanting that one more person to come to him. It's not just the unbelievers he's calling. It's believers too. Some of you in this room are weighed down with a lot of stuff. you got a lot of worries and concerns. He's telling you right now, come to me, those who are heavy laden. All these burdens and all the stuff you're carrying. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. And when we do that, we need to lay it down at his feet. But don't pick it up and take it out when you leave. That's a lot of problem we have. We like to pick up everything as we leave. Don't listen to the enemy. He's telling you you're never going to be good enough. Well, you know, technically that's true. We'll never be good enough. That's why the reason why Christ died. But God has done something about it. So what are your intentions? Words and actions can and will show the motivation. Have you made a public declaration of your faith in Christ? Have you repented? Repent means to turn. 180 degrees. Now I'm heading towards the things of God. And by the way, it doesn't mean simply I'm sorry. It means Lord, I don't want to do those things anymore. Help me. And His Holy Spirit will come in and can give you what you need and able to walk that out. Confess and submit your life to Him. Have you died with Christ and be raised up with Him? Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever dies me, denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. There is a public declaration that he's interested in. He wants you to say, hey, publicly confess me. Because, you know, what he did on the cross, he did so in a very public way. 
But I must warn you. If your intent is to be a true disciple of Christ, you say, Tim, I want to be a disciple of Christ. I want to be more and more like Christ every day. I must warn you, it's going to cost. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and following. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, this is Jesus, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Now he's not saying you just hate them to hate them. But he said, I have to come first. I have to have first place in your life above your children, above your brothers, above your sisters, yes, even your spouse. And in that verse 26, he goes on to say, and yes, even your own life, if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, we should put him before everything, even our own life. I have to put it down, lay it down before him. He says, this is not my words, this is his words. If you do not hate your own father, your mother, and your wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. But now he even breaks it down even further. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now you realize the cross in the first century was a form of public execution reserved for the very worst. If you're a Roman citizen and you committed a crime worth of capital punishment, they would never put you on a cross. Put it in contemporary days, contemporary language, it'd be like going to Huntsville in a death chamber, laying on that, laying on that thing they put people on before they put the lethal injection in. That's the picture that would come to their mind. And Christ is saying, you need to be willing to pick up your own cross. Self-denial. But it even means laying your life down if necessary for the cause of Christ. He explains it more in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It's no different than here as a church. If we decide to add a building on, what's the first question we're going to ask ourselves? If we're going to build something. What's the first thing we ask? How much is it going to cost? Because we won't be able to finish it. That's what he's pointing out here. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against them with 20,000? Or else, while the others still fall away, he sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So here's a king. He outnumbers me two to one. Can we take him or not? Is it worth sacrificing my men? Can I be conquered? Or, if he doesn't think he can, he's going to send out a person to seek peace. So then, verse 33, none of, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless with what will be seasoned. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. Manure pile it is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if salt loses its saltiness, it's, it's purpose. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't redo it. You just throw it out. Like if milk goes sour, what are you going to do? Are you going to make the milk good again? The only thing you do is throw it out. That's the point he's making. And the reason I bring that up is to be a true disciple of Christ, it's going to cost. Why is that? Christ answers that question himself. 
If they persecute you, remember they first persecuted me. If they hate you, remember they first hated me. What we believe, what we profess to believe, goes contrary to what the world is talking about today. We talk about self-denial, self-sacrifice, love and forgiveness. Turn on the TV. How much do you see that going on? We are called. So I'm going to end with this. Are you a Christian? Are you willing to put it all on the line for him? And the question that just hangs over our head this morning, what are our true intentions? What's our true objective? What's our goal? What are we doing here? Only answer that's acceptable to that is to raise high the name of Christ, leading people to Christ and exalting Christ. If we're not doing that, then we're wasting our time and we're fooling ourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word, to guide us and direct us. And Lord, now we ask you to continue to search our hearts, to dig deep in those places we don't let other people see. What is our intention? What's our objective? What is our agenda, dear God? Father, see if there's any wicked way in us that we may confess it and repent from it. God, I would ask that you would give us courage and the boldness to step out if need be. That we will not walk away. Father, we would hear your voice and respond to it. Father, I'd ask you to knock every barrier down. That indeed that you would break every chain. That we as a body of Christ would reach out. Not only in our actions, but Father, for the world. Not that we'd be tied to a list of do's and don'ts, but Father, would be a, a burden of our heart. Not simply witness to somebody for the sake of doing it and checking it off, but because our heart's burdened for them. Burden our hearts for the lost. Burden our hearts for the state of our country and for our leaders. Father, I, I pray that you would continue to move among us and continue work from this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.